What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mike Pollard. I have Mike Sunder, a UK strategist in Tokyo. Tokyo is an amazing city. We're going to talk about Tokyo. We're going to talk about being an expat in Tokyo today. And before we get into it, I want to be really clear that we're going to do our best to not be disrespectful, to honor that amazing country, because it's very easy for a couple of foreigners just to say things that can sound kind of flippant, even though we are curious and thoughtful, and that's what can take us to these places, and we don't mean to do that. So I don't know if you've got a caveat to add on to that, Mike, and welcome, by the way. No, that, that sounds good for a start, and thank you for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. Let's start with the obvious question. What took you to Tokyo in the first place, and how long have you been there? So yeah, it's uh, a question I get asked a lot living in Japan, obviously, I think you know, people living in Japan are keen to ask is what brought you out here? And in my case, it was fairly random. When I was finishing up high school in the UK, I wanted to take a gap year before I went to university. And that was 11 years ago, 2007. And my school in London had a relationship with a sister school out sort of on the suburbs of Tokyo in a place called Saitama. And I came out here for a working holiday when I was 18. I lived here for a year. I did a homestay while teaching at the school where the, the kids of the, the homestay family that I lived with went to. And then fell in love with Tokyo, fell in love with the city, uh, really stimulating sort of culturally, socially, uh, not a million miles away from London in some regards. So I think that helped whilst also sort of retaining all of that novelty, that uniqueness and mm. decided to study Japanese, went back, did my undergraduate degree in Japanese came back out to Japan to do my master's degree and I've been here ever since. I have a theory, no idea if it's interesting or original at all, and that doesn't even matter. But often when people move around, they're running to something, sometimes as much or even less than they're running away from something. What were you running to and what were you leaving behind? Up until that point, up until I was 18, I'd spent my entire life in London. You know, I was very comfortable living in the city, it was kind of fun, especially once you get a bit older, you have time after school to go out, you start drinking, all of that. But I think there was always a desire to experience a different culture or a different environment, wherever that may have been. So even if it hadn't been Japan, I like to think that I would have traveled somewhere prior to starting at university. Mm. And the fact that it did end up being Japan has obviously shaped my life whether that's, you know, for better or worse, but I'm still here 11 years later. And was there anything that you were leaving behind or I'll use a more dramatic question, running away from? Honestly, at that point, I, there was nothing I could put my finger on. It was more of a, a youthful curiosity to, you know, explore something different. You know, school was fine, but by the time I had left or I was leaving, I definitely didn't feel like particularly stimulated or particularly keen to stick around in the same environment or the same peer group, the same part of the city. So whilst not necessarily having anything specific that I was running away from, I think there was, and I think this would happen with anyone uh, changing scenery at that time of your life, there's, there's a desire to kind of go and reinvent yourself or try and, I think, start afresh somewhere else and you know, if you're moving to the other side of the world, that obviously gives you the, a very clear foundation on which to, to do that. Mm -hmm. And in your fresh restart, were you conscious of how you wanted to restart? 
do you, you know, do you, do you feel that you are a different kind of person in some ways compared to 11 years ago when you arrived in Japan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I first came here as an 18 year old, I had that kind of energy to just throw myself into the, this new sort of culture, this new environment. So I was, you know, kind of fearless. Like I would go out and speak to everyone. I hadn't learned any Japanese at school, but I sort of would strike up conversations in whatever broken Japanese that I knew at the time. And it's the sort of attitude or the sort of approach that I don't think you can do realistically as a 30 year old, or maybe some people can, but I definitely wouldn't have the kind of the confidence to, to take the same approach again now. Mm. So really, I think over the past 11 years, it's more been about kind of settling down and kind of finding a routine in which I'm neither doing very kind of Japanese things or very Tokyo things just for the sake of it, but mm. rather I found a kind of lifestyle or a way of living in Tokyo, which is kind of true to what is now a very sort of multicultural upbringing or background for me. Mm. I know that maybe there's World War Three going on and it's a cultural war uh, and it's about often about identity and, uh, well, including things like open borders, closed borders, and who are we and who's in our tribe and who do we want to be in our tribe. But uh, I, I identify with what you're talking about, about moving around, traveling around and having chats with strangers. And, and I often go to stand-up comedy clubs wherever I am if I can find something that's good. And uh, a, a female friend once said to me, well, that's because that's you're a white, white male that you can do that. And I was like, why are you labeling me like that? And then I, I gave it some thought. And I don't really like those words if they're intended to try to shame me for who I am. But I, I sat there and I thought about it. And I was like, you know what? Totally true. Totally true. It's, it's easier for people who look a certain way, who are from a certain background to gain access to different parts of the world that... Like in, in many parts of Asia, if you were from Bangladesh, just landed in Tokyo and like, I'm going to go talk to some people, they might not be that responsive. And for a long period as well, and I know Japan's got a different relationship, like uh, South Korea, for example, if you were from Africa and we're in South Korea, like South Korea is just navigating uh, a new type of relationship with that part of the world. So it's, it's anyway, something I just, I, I think is useful to point out. It, it should never lead to to shame you just got to work out how you can pass it on and, and help other people with the fact that sometimes you can get access to things it's completely the case and it's another reason why i think the term expat in itself is quite problematic because it tends to connote ultimately white western migrants and you know in japan you've got a huge southeast asian migrant population you've got you know people coming from let's say the philippines to do uh care caregiving work which is hugely important vital within the context of japanese economy and society and for a lot of white westerners moving to japan you know in the past especially it has been for professions such as english teaching or recruiting and you know ultimately they're very different uh, sort of experiences, lived experiences within Japan. And it's important to call out the the different sort of uh, levels of privilege that that affords you. Mm. And even for myself, you know, I think because I'm a, a quarter Thai ethnically, so I can actually read as half Asian or half Japanese to a lot mm. of people. Mm -hmm. So even, you know, especially once I'd started learning the language and I could speak Japanese, I would get people asking whether I'm half Japanese, whether I uh, had grown up here not everyone to some Japanese people I read as very white to others I read as more kind of mixed Asian 
And so even my own personal experience has been quite different in terms of the, the levels of, I guess, privilege and sort of intimacy that I'm afforded in interpersonal exchanges and relationships. Mm-hmm. And it might be changing and it might be loosening, but up until very, very recently, there was an implicit ranking of Asian countries and the people who came from them in Asia. Now, my, I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. My wife's from South Korea, left there when she was four or five. When we've traveled around Asia, uh, people that we've run into have been very quick to try to understand which, which Asian she is so they can understand where she fits in the rankings of things. And uh, it really makes her blood boil uh so it's it, it's interesting i i hope all this stuff is for the new generations is going to be different can you tell me a little bit about the work you do the strategy work and then also you're a researching journalistic minded person and you document stuff i would say kind of just for the sake of it i mean you've published and shared things with the bbc and, and japan times for example what do you do in life <laughs> So, I mean, my current role, as you say, is uh, as a strategist. I work in the, the Tokyo office of Mullen Mo, which is part of IPG Group. But I think my sort of take on strategy is very much informed by, like you say, my sort of journalistic background. About a year and a half ago, in the summer of 2017, I started up a cultural insights specialism called Tokyo20XX. And the idea behind that initially was to turn insights and research into video output, so short-form documentaries. And the thinking behind that was that a lot of the work that you do in terms of research and insights as a strategist, because it doesn't have an obvious output, and especially if, for instance, the the creative scope ultimately gets cancelled or mutates into some other type of scope or form, you never get the the kind of the vindication of seeing the the effort that you put in, put into that research and those insights existing in the world in sort of a public facing context and as a journalist or as a content creator that was very much the the motivation behind doing all of that work and speaking to people and telling those stories it was the fact that people would at the end of the day be reading it and seeing the videos and watching the documentaries and all of that. So I think it might not have been a super, you know, conscious uh, recognition that there was something lacking in the the kind of strategy role otherwise, but it was something that I did sort of in whatever way seek to address. And Mm -hmm. that's how I kind of ended up doing what I currently do. Love it. You got to keep that output fresh. So there's a, a, a loaded question and a premise in this question with which you can disagree with entirely. As someone who identifies as a people watcher, do you ever wonder whether you watch too much of the world and whether you use that as a way to protect yourself or do you feel that you're in the world and engaging with the world as well as watching it and documenting it? Well, for a start, I would argue that I've never self-identified as a people watcher. I don't think I would consider what I do to be sort of voyeuristic in that sense. I mean, when I was creating uh, editorial content, branded content in a freelance capacity, I was doing so whilst being very much in culture. My background's more in music. So when I was writing about music, I was also DJing. I was out at the clubs pretty much two, three times a week. You know, my life choices in terms of where I chose to live, where I chose to 
work would kind of revolve around actually being part of that culture and making mm-hmm. those connections and being very visible in mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. And I think I would never have felt like I would have the authority to speak about culture if I had only been kind of watching it from the sidelines. Mm. I think you have to build up that trust within those kind of cultural communities or creative mm. communities. Mm. And you can't, you know, there's no substitute for ultimately being there and, and showing that you've put in that time and that effort. Totally. Uh, so, I mean, I, I used to host a hip hop radio show and write for lots of magazines, started a magazine uh, and, you know, reviewed music, interviewed people and hosted events. And it was great. There was a contribution. I was involved in a community. To your point, there was some kind of visibility within that, which was pretty good for an introvert as a way to, to meet people. There were, <laughs> there were words that rolled ahead of me, which was useful. However, you're not really in it, in it. You're still sometimes on the outskirts of it, analyzing it. And having read some, some books on this kind of stuff, I'm, I'm just seeing if you identify with it or if it's just offensive or useless. I def, I, look, and I can talk from personal experience and that I, I, over the years, I was like, you know what? I'm not telling my story. I'm not telling, expressing my creativity. I'm doing it by proxy through other people's stories, which is valuable. I want these stories out there. That's why I'm doing it. But especially in the past couple of years, I've thought, you know what? How do I get my voice out there? What is that going to really, really look like if I don't use, this is absolutely not a, a comment about you or anyone else who does the kind of work that we've done, but without using other people almost as a crutch that I can always, yeah. I can say something and I can then disappear into it, like disappear from what I've said by saying, oh, that was what this person said. Or this, this is just my analysis of what the people said, as opposed to being in the cage and fighting. Do you relate to any of that? Is, is that useless, useful? No, I think it's a hugely important conversation to be having. Um, I think when I was working in a freelance capacity, when I was creating kind of content in that capacity in that world, I was a lot closer in terms of how I identified with, let's say, musicians and uh, artists because the the conditions, the economic conditions that I was operating within were equally as precarious as uh, they were experiencing. So, you know, if I invoiced for an article and someone didn't pay me for two months, I was experiencing the same kind of precarity that is very much, I think, affecting the creative industry at the moment. So there was at least a level of empathy or sympathy in terms of the I guess, economic conditions that affect culture and the, the spread of, I guess, creativity, cultural capital, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Whereas now it's a lot harder to make that argument when you're working in advertising, when as an industry, it can be very exploitative and it is all about sort of using the, the sort of the raw uh, creativity or cultural effects of a, of a scene, of a community and turning that into content or uh some sort of output that ultimately doesn't that they don't profit from or it doesn't you know build that scene it doesn't grow that scene it doesn't nurture that scene so Mm -hmm. that's something that i think about a lot in the work that i do and i would never want to be accused of creating the sort of culture strategy that is purely exploitative and that Mm -hmm. doesn't give back to the people that you know are responsible for, for creating it in the first place Okay. Could you talk us through some of the topics that you have documented that you really found yourself losing yourself in? 
again, it's a good question because I think if I look back on the sort of things that I've put out in my career over the past seven or eight years, a lot of it, especially in advertising, can come across as quite superficial or not particularly fulfilling. So when I look back to uh, my work as a journalist, one of the articles that I wrote for the BBC was about the workers at a slaughterhouse in the south part of Tokyo, which is quite a undocumented story. It ties back to the discrimination, the historical discrimination against essentially a caste of people called the Burakumin. So uh, historically, people who would be working with leather, who would be working with animal corpses, with human corpses, that kind of prejudice and discrimination has very much persisted to this day in quite a unspoken uh, capacity. Mm. You know, the people who work at this slaughterhouse are not necessarily of that descent or from those uh, Padaku villages themselves, but they get the same uh, discrimination. They, they are impacted by the same prejudice that would have affected Buraka communities in the past. And so I wrote a story, I interviewed them, I wrote a story about that. And I think within a day of publication on BBC Asia, it had seen about a million hits or a million views. Mm. And, you know, this is a story that people in Japan don't even know about a lot of the time. Like it, it's not, you know, it's a massive taboo. It doesn't get picked up by mainstream media whatsoever. It's one of these kind of difficult uh, topics that the mass media or the mainstream press would rather not cover, especially uh, if they're, you know, pro-Japan or nationalistic. So when I see the effects that, you know, an article like that has had in, in telling these people's story, um, you know, I've seen it picked up in various different uh, publications after that, you know, in books, uh, in academic journals. I feel like that actually had a, a measurable, you know, impact on the world ultimately. And that's the sort of thing that I think I want to be doing to to motivate myself. And mm -hmm. it's quite hard to get that kind of opportunity within advertising, but probably not impossible ultimately, depending on the sort of the relationships that you build with clients and yeah. the, the sort of projects available to you. Okay. So with that topic, how did you come across it? At what point did you think it was ripe for you to investigate? And why did you think it was okay for you to investigate it when it is another country's taboo? Because you are in making that decision. There's a ton of other little decisions going into what you ended up doing, knowing that there could be good and not good consequences from that entire set of decisions. How did you, how did you make that decision? So I think there's two questions within that. And the first one relates to the broader topic of documenting and speaking about Japan from a non-Japanese perspective. And the way I see that personally, and this is coming from my experience uh, working with creatives, artists, uh, working in journalism, is that there isn't going to be a solid English language output if it is solely the domain of Japanese journalists or Japanese publications, Japanese media. So. English in general in Japan is not of uh, particularly high proficiency, especially spoken English. Uh, it's something that the education system here has struggled with for a long time. And if, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this 
down the route of covering musicians or artists just because I think it's a simpler example to start with. But if you want to support a creator in that scene or in that community, then opening them up to the international exposure that comes with a English language publication can be hugely beneficial for their careers, for their lives. There's a word in Japanese called gyaku yunyu, which essentially means uh, kind of reverse import or you know, backwards importing. And it speaks to this notion that once something Japanese is picked up by uh, international circles or global publications, if it gets spoken about in America, if it gets spoken about in Europe, then that, that buzz or that attention gets translated back to the immediate uh, Japanese local context and the, the sort of peer group that they operate within. And that can, you know, when used responsibly, can have very positive impacts on people's lives. And in the specific instance of the article that you're talking about, you know, this is a story that has been covered in Japanese. Uh, a lot of the research that I was doing to begin with was looking at Japanese language publications and you know academic writing on the topic but it, it had never really been covered in English to a significant degree outside of very niche academic journals and again it comes down to sort of covering these matters responsibly in a kind of sensitive nuanced way but if you feel like you can do justice to it and ultimately if you feel like there's value in um, spreading that story to a mass kind of worldwide uh, audience, then it's down to you to do it as a English speaker, or in my case, as someone who can conduct the interviews in Japanese and then translate the the written output into English. Because mm. there's not a huge number of people who can do that, or who have the the platforms available to them to distribute that in a large scale. Mm -hmm. uh, you used justice in a different way, but having said that you hope to do good through the strategy work you do and sometimes it can feel a bit a bit difficult or a little bit distant within the advertising industry itself is justice a large motivation for you in your writing i think understanding and respecting the sensitivities that come with cross-cultural interaction is a huge motivation and continues to be um, if you look at for instance the history of japan you know in the post-war period all, all of Saeed's writing about Orientalism completely applies to the Western perceptions of Japan. It was all about, uh, you know, certain kind of uh, cliched tropes, whether that's kimonos 30 years ago, or Harajuku girls 10 years ago, or, you know, the kind of wacky Japan stories that will get shared on publications like Vice about, you know, eyeball licking and people injecting saline into their foreheads, like really kind of fucked up niche stories that then get a lot more traction than they should because there's already a kind of fundamental image of Japan as being weird or being kind of kooky or wacky baked into Western perceptions. Mm -hmm. And trying to get around that and actually tell the real stories, even if they are kind of niche still, but trying to tell, real, you know, document realistically and sensitively the lived experience of people in Japan is is a huge motivation and mm. you know that comes across in advertising as well mm. yeah I mean all I think it's fair to say there's a huge generalization but I, I think all tribes like to think the other tribes a little bit funny 
people love to make fun of America. And I'm like, you know what? America's everything. There's kind of every there's there's kind of everything here. So it's not monolithic. So just to make fun of the the USA uh, through some random, bizarre, and sometimes very public behavior of very famous people, it really does a discredit because it's also got incredible people here with high skill, high intellect, high compassion. And it's, it's got the opposite, just like everywhere else. There just happen to be more extremes. And for many people, those extremes happen in a bigger public. What's one other topic that you've investigated? Well, just, sorry, going very quickly back yeah. to your last question. I mean, one of the really interesting and also frustrating things is that Japan itself, you know, the institutions within Japan, so the government and the big, uh, the big sort of powerful institutional systems, they propagate these kind of generalized cliched images of Japan. So if you look at the kind of 1970s, you had this big boom of what was called Nihon Jinron in Japanese academia. And it was all about defining uh, Japan and Japanese-ness in a way that was incredibly reductive and reliant on, you know, historical cliches and kind of these Western perceptions of Japan. But they baked it into academia in a way that gave it far more credibility than it ever should have had. Mm. And now, you know, 30, 40 years later, looking ahead to the Olympics, you see the same thing in the way that uh, Japan puts all of its money into uh, movements or uh, kind of plays like Cool Japan, which is all about supporting things like anime and manga and, you know, kimonos, but doing so in a way that is completely detached from the realities of contemporary Japan mm. and still plays into these, you know, overly generalized tropes that were never really as influential or important to the day-to-day -day experience of people here as people would have perceived. So, you know, Japan is by no means innocent in that regard. Like it works both ways. Yeah. And I think most countries of, of <laughs> I think most countries have some kind of cultural export colonialism program. I mean, even after World War II, there were deals done in the name of amnesty and support where certain countries in Europe had their movie industry. Uh, I don't want to use, I don't want to use the wrong language, but basically minimized and blocked a little bit because a country that came in and helped wanted to sell their movies into that area. And that's led to this decades long sense of resentment in some places. And, and also, for example, in France, you know, an amazing, aim to protect their language and only allow certain words into into the language, which some people would say is, is fascist and that language is a naturally yeah. occur occurring thing and should be allowed to happen. On the other hand, I kind of get it because there's always someone trying to take over someone else. So tell us about another topic that you digested and put out into the world. The documentaries that I launched Tokyo 20XX with uh, in the summer of 2017, just given that it was quite a novel approach and done on a shoestring budget at the time. Like we, we produced three kind of three to five minute video documentaries about different cultural scenes within the neighborhood of Shibuya in Tokyo. So there was one on the kind of musical history of the neighborhood. There was one on uh, the area's policy towards its LGBTQ residents. And there was one on kind of sports culture ahead of the Olympics and how you have this kind of tension where, you know, urban sports like skateboarding, uh, pickup basketball, street dancing, they're really popular and they're vital to the local culture. But whilst the area is being kind of renovated or built up 
ahead of the Olympics, the kind of the urbanization and all of the, the new infrastructure is destroying the opportunities to practice those sports. So, you know, there were short documentaries, but kind of at least I would think fairly nuanced takes on a very specific location at a very specific time. Mm. And I guess my question to other people would be whether that has any value or whether it was a lot of production work for what could have been just, you know, a white paper or mm-hmm. a blog post. Um, I think that's something that I'm still grappling with personally. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> you just have to do it cause you have to do it. You have to do it cause you love to do it. You know that. I mean, I spent 15 hours editing a two hour interview into about an hour 20 recently. And I'm, and I'm like, I know this isn't going to get listened to that much more than the three to four hours I often spend editing the interviews, but I, I did it as an act of love and I had to be happy with that. It's like when you, when you accept a job and you get a salary for some period of time, you just have to be happy with that. <laughs> but yeah. it's, a, it's otherwise you keep asking and then you have to go, well, what is, what is valuable? What's valuable to me? What's value to, valuable to them? At what point does it become enough? Because there's always more. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work you do. Uh, and also, do you work largely in Japanese or English? So we're quite a unique office in so much as the, uh, the working language is Japanese. So we're split about 50-50 in terms of uh, native Japanese speakers and international hires, but everyone is expected to speak Japanese and to be committed to Japanese culture, uh, which for an international agency in Japan is quite rare. You tend to, to go in one direction or the other where you're entirely international or you're basically just a domestic Japanese agency with a international title. So we speak Japanese internally and then we deal with a mix of clients. We have a lot of international clients, uh, regional scopes, global scopes that are shared with or other kind of network offices around the world. And then that really depends on who the stakeholder is at that point, whether we're sort of working with them in English or Japanese, but then the output is for the Japanese market. So mm. the, you know, the end product, whether that's creative or, you know, website build, that's always going to be in Japanese. Okay. And then what about some of the strategy activities that you do? Uh, I recently interviewed Sadeep Gohill, who's currently head of brand strategy at KPMG in, I think that's a, yes, a, a head of it at Sydney, maybe Australia. Uh, he was CEO of Droga5 in Sydney and he sort of, he's worked at BBH in London, helped increase planning at Widening Kennedy in Portland. And I, I, before yeah. I interviewed him, I found some of the articles and I, I think there was one from around 2000 because he spent a year or so, I think, in Tokyo. And in this article that talked about, it wasn't him writing it, someone else had written it. And it talked about how uh, things like focus groups, which at that time were de rigueur, de rigueur uh, in, you know, in America and England and Australia, how that was actually a difficult dynamic within Japanese culture because it meant that people had to, well, theoretically have some kind of opinion and, and people uh, are very layered in hinting at opinions in Japan. Uh, first of all, does that sound true? And then second of all, are there ways that you have to adapt doing strategy that may be a very, very different, say, where you're from in London? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not the best person to speak to about this because I never practiced strategy in a full-time role in London. So this mm-hmm. is very much a discipline that I've had to learn and adapt to since being in Japan. So I wouldn't know kind of the traditional Western models beyond what I've read in books, but everything that I do has to be geared towards Japanese sensitivities to be effective. And to your point, I think 
it, it it's really interesting if you have a one-on-one -on -one with you know a japanese person in general the the conventional kind of takeaway is that people aren't that comfortable speaking about opinions that are quite sort of personal or charged or you know controversial or in any way challenging but there's a Japanese academic called Hiroki Azuma and he created this cafe in Tokyo called the Genlon Cafe and it came out of his desire to create better discourse and initiate better uh, rhetoric or rhetorical conversations and dialogue between people in Japan and his take on it was that you had to have spectators and that was the way to get around it so if you talk to someone one-on-one -on -one, you're not going to end up with a particularly challenging or interesting uh, piece of discourse or conversation but if you put if you add spectators into the mix so if you have two people talking whilst you know even just one other person listens the dynamic changes completely and it becomes a lot more for whatever reason a lot more easy for uh japanese you know respondents or people to engage in much more heated dialogue mm. and you know ultimately that's borne out in in his uh you know in, in what he's done with genlon and his kind of academic work mm -hmm. and you know it's a very subtle like shift to the dynamic but it's something that you can very easily uh, put into action in for instance the focus group context as well what drives that and you know the the word spectator if an academic is using it it's obviously a very thought through and specific choice of word where i'm sure there are other schools of philosophy and other types of academics that might use words like uh, surveillance instead of spectating, for example, and that might not be the correct word to describe the dynamic that you're seeing. Uh, what, what, what is it about having someone else there that enlivens the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think surveillance, at least for me, connotes a sort of unbalanced power dynamic between people who are aware that they're being surveyed and people that they're doing the surveying and then mm -hmm. people who are not aware that they're being surveyed. So I don't think I would use that specific term in this context uh, this is very much about having visible spectators listening to a conversation even if they're not actually taking part and then becoming the sort of enabler or the the conduit for kind of challenging heated conversations to occur mm. in terms of why that is the case that's a really good question and i think when i mean i actually interviewed asimo once and he was speaking about it just for some reason unlock some sort of sensibility or openness that in one-on-one -on -one dynamics just does not exist and I think it could be linguistic as well because when you're having a conversation with another person it becomes very hard to give a very short sort of clear snappy answer uh, there's there's a lot of politeness in the Japanese language there's a lot of ways to curtail the the true sort of feeling or intensity of thought behind what you're saying Whereas if you're speaking in front of others, it's more performative. So the language that you use actually changes. Mm. You're no longer using the same levels of politeness or the same kind of length of sentences that you would otherwise. So it could even be the fact that it's unlocking different sort of linguistic devices or dynamics that allow for, for better conversation to occur.
Mm, interesting. Yeah, this, I'd love to read about that. I feel like spectator, as a word, doesn't get me to what I think is going on there. And to, to your point on surveillance, I hear that definition. However, if one thinks about the open office, the modern open office that's sold to people in the name of openness, fairness, equity, and collaboration, often what's actually happening there is that it's cheaper to sit people in those seats. And you watch anyone in some kind of managerial role, guarantee you they're looking around the office surveilling and people, <laughs> people might believe the open and collaborative non-corner office situation, but people are surveilling and they haven't agreed to it. So, uh, which is sim- similar to what you were saying anyway, but I, I, I kind of see it's, it's hard when you read a little bit of Michel Foucault to not see a lot of the world as, as just one big surveillance operation. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's very hard not to see everything as, you know, exploitation under waged labor if you've read a bit of Marx. So I think, it, you know, it's always going to come down to these kind of power dynamics. And a lot of it is inescapable within the office context, right? Mm. And ultimately, you know, how do you reconcile that with what you do in advertising at an agency? It becomes kind of, you know, you just sort of let it be or <laughs> do you kind of grapple with it? Mm. Are you currently working on any side projects? Are you are you documenting anything that's going to see the light of day this year? Um, I've just finished a sort of pseudo-fictional documentary video for Red Bull Music in Japan. And it's a story of a Korean uh, synthesizer, modular synthesizer artist who lives in Tokyo and practices music in Tokyo, but the way that we're telling it is deliberately kind of adding in this sort of avant-garde pseudo-fictional layer to the narrative. So it gets it away from being a conventional documentary and turns it more into a video that you would watch for the story rather than the kind of informational content. So I'm really interested to see how that will turn out and how it will kind of compare to more straightforward sort of documentary work. Yeah. Do you, it's, it's so funny. I think there's a subreddit called Obscure Media where people post these documentaries from years ago. And I have a feeling that there's some, especially from the 60s and 70s, for example, a documentary with uh, Marshall McLuhan. Uh, yeah. And also Don, is it Don DeLillo, Don DeLillo, the writer who actually used Don to DeLillo, work? Don DeLillo. Yeah. yeah. Don DeLillo, who used to work in advertising. And they, they, people work with them to tell a story, but it's, a little surreal and unusual around it with odd narration and quite literary and not that dissimilar to, I think how Anthony Bourdain approached a lot of his more recent TV work. Yeah. And I mean, personally, I've been recently very interested in kind of not just Afrofuturism, but I guess yeah. the, the video works of uh, black British video artists like uh, John the Comfra and uh, Isaac Julian. And when you look at their work, you know, it's, incredibly informative and powerful in the the way that it's relaying you know information about the kind of conditions of society and the power structures that exist and Mm. exist to exploit people but it's done and captured in a way that is so artistic and so sort of not challenging but inspiring and engaging in the way that it mixes media formats and the way that it mixes narrative devices and so on Mm -hmm. and i think especially in advertising, we're so quick to fall into formats that are easily digestible and that we understand because, you know, that's kind of how we work, right? We, we fit the creative to, you know, whether it's a six-second YouTube pre-roll or a 15-second TVC or a 30-second, you know, 
Instagram story. I mean, I don't even know if they got up to 30 seconds, 15 second Instagram story. But the point is that we're very limited in the formats that inspire our creative thinking. Mm-hmm. And it can be really liberating to try and work outside of those. And, you know, obviously you're not going to get necessarily a lot of opportunities to do that, but I think there is potential there. You mentioned earlier that you're aware that sometimes advertising can be exploitative of cultures and, and subcultures and, and that you're interested in uh, Afrofuturism. At, at what point would your work become appropriation? And I've, I've been giving this a little bit of thought lately. I mean, I created a hip hop magazine. I, I often try to document people who, who rapped in their native language. Graffiti was, was big, like in, in England and Australia, from a very early stage. I think one of the first, if not the first hip hop magazine, I'm going to say it, came out of Sydney, a guy called Blaze uh, and Vapors. It was, it was definitely, I think it was before the source, which was huge. Like, at, at what point is something appropriation when you're bringing these cultures together? Do you have a philosophy yeah. on, on that? Explain it to me. I'm trying to wrestle with this idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, there, in, in my mind, there is no debate about cultural appropriation. It exists and it's something that you have to be aware of and you have to be very cognizant of. I, I think there's still some people who debate it as a, as a concept or as a notion, and I would argue that there is no debate. Uh, in terms of my personal philosophy, I think the simp- most simplistic way to look at it is I guess, you know, going back to Marxist, but also the kind of post-Marxist thinking of uh, academics like Stuart Hall in the UK, where you're looking at, you know, who, who profits from culture, who profits from not the appropriation, but rather the distribution of culture. And in what way does it allow for contestation on the part of the people who are actually sort of producing the culture? So is it done in a kind of uh, bilateral way or is it very much just a a sort of singular uh, one-way process and so when I think about working within culture ultimately I'm looking at who is profiting and where where is the profit going Mm. and I think from being in a position such as my own there are certain actions that you can take to make sure that the the local community or the creators involved in producing that culture are the ones who are profiting that the people who are involved in planning and production actually come from those communities that are representative of you know that cultural scene and Mm -hmm. that you're not just you know spending a lot of money on someone who has you know you could do you could feasibly spend a lot of money on research that never actually speaks to anyone who is uh, involved in that culture and even worse you could speak to people who are involved in that culture and not pay them mm-hmm. so uh, does that mean that say the first decade of hip-hop in america was appropriation but because i don't think a lot of that money went back to the people making the music or the culture i mean hip-hop's a really tricky one like it's hip-hop has been called the sort of poster child of capitalism because it perpetuates i guess the the power imbalance between you know wealthy white America and everyone else, essentially, the marginalized communities. So I don't personally know enough about hip hop to make a a very nuanced argument either way, but it ultimately, I think it depends on whether it's allowing for, you know, these kind of marginalized communities in whatever way to to break out of that socioeconomic context and actually well, not, I'm not going to sort of go into classes at this point, but to, to sort of narrow the gap between their 
socio-cultural-economic experience and that of the people who are controlling the, the, the music industry or the creative industry. Mm. And, you know, I don't know what happened in the first 10 years of hip-hop. Uh, I would probably guess that it wasn't particularly uh, empowering, ultimately, to those people in those communities beyond a few select cases. But I think if you look at hip-hop nowadays and, you know, I listen to a lot of UK rap and... You know, I'm a big fan of grime music in the UK, and I think you can make a very credible argument that that as a genre has actually empowered certain communities in a, in a meaningful, meaningful way. Mm. And I don't think it's happened over the short term, but I think it's, you know, you're going to see the effects of that in the next 5, 10, 20 years quite tangibly. Yeah, I, f I find a lot of these topics which are, I'm a little bit new to. I, I like to hear, like, I'd love to hear 10 different opinions. Just tell me, I want to I hear them, I want to I understand them, have things explained to me. I don't feel I have to force a judgment on a lot of these things while also knowing that uh, many of these things don't need any more bystanders in the world and that it can be useful to commit. But I'm kind of, there's just things that are a bit, a bit new to me and I'm trying to reconcile some of these ideas. Uh, last, last couple of questions. What keeps you in Tokyo? That's another good question. Um, <laughs> I think... It's very hard to get bored of Tokyo as a city, especially if you, you know, if you have a good sort of group of friends around you, if you have a routine that you enjoy or you have things that you enjoy, because at the end of the day, Tokyo as a city has everything. It's got a lot of culture. Uh, you know, I would say that music culture in London is more to my taste than music culture in Tokyo, but there's still a hell of a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Uh, there's a lot of art. There's a lot of you know, like incredible architecture, uh, amazing food, places to go out. And it's all packaged within a city that's very convenient and 24-7. So, you know, you can get a train to the other side, you know, from West Tokyo to East Tokyo in 20 minutes and the distance that you've covered is actually huge, but you would never think of it that way because it's, it's so seamless and, you know, even the buses run to the minute. So once you get used to this level of convenience and, not just convenience, but convenience paired with a lot of kind of cultural inspiration, then it's, it's a very hard city to leave. Mm. But going back to what you said originally, it's also, you know, coming from my specific uh, identity and, you know, all the privilege that is afforded to me as someone who can afford to go to gigs, for instance, when actually, you know, a typical live show, music show here will cost 4,000, 5,000 yen even. So that's, you know, $50 US. And that's not cheap. So for someone, you know, like a young kid living in the suburbs of Tokyo without, you know, expendable income, actually, Tokyo probably isn't a particularly great city mm. in which to be living. You know? I just heard you spell the word party. I'm pretty sure I just heard you go P-A-R-T-Y. I'm totally teasing. I'm totally teasing. Uh, <laughs> okay, last question. For someone who is entranced by the idea of Tokyo and who would like to work in, in advertising in Tokyo, what things should they be aware of before they commit, assuming they can find a job? There's, there's a lot. Um, I don't think it's easy to find a job for a start. If, if they can find a job, that's probably uh, most of the, the challenge right there because, you know, all of the boring stuff, you have to, you know, have a working visa. You have to be sponsored by a company. There's a lot of bureaucracy involved in, working in Japan as a non-Japanese person. But kind of from a ideological standpoint or a philosophical, philosophical standpoint, I would say the biggest challenge or the biggest opportunity is to try and, I guess, uh, 
sort of throw away all of your intrinsic biases around what it means to, you know, be someone living in Japan or what Japan means as a kind of broader concept and actually just try and get to the heart of that through whatever experience you deem sort of important or reflective of that reality. I think if you come here and you move here and you want to be a strategist in Japan, the first thing you need to do is recognize that you don't know shit about Japan and it's going to take a long time before you do. And that means learning the language. That means a lot of time involved in the society and understanding what it means to be someone working in Japan or someone, you know, taking care of kids in Japan. And, you know, I'm not saying that I have got all of that yet myself, but I think after, you know, the better part of 11 years, I probably got the foundation at least and, you know, committing to the language and learning about the culture and so on. And if you don't do that, I think it's going to be very hard to be credible in front of other people. But more importantly, it's going to be very hard to justify your output personally or mm. to yourself because you're, you're still going to be aware that there's, there's some sort of, you know, fundamental knowledge gap there. You know, you can you can get around it to some extent. You can use research partners. You can work with, uh, you know, native Japanese or native Japanese planners, creatives, and so on. But mm. I think you have to really, really invest in the culture and living in Japan. And it's not something that there's any substitute for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the phrase, you don't know shit, but you're going to find out about it, or I don't know shit, but I'm going to find out about it, is just a, it's just an edgier, shibuya, nightclub DJ way of saying beginner's mind, which is useful every single day. Anyone does any kind of strategy anywhere in the world. Mike, I really appreciate you joining me live from Tokyo today. Where can people find you on the internet? And also where can they find your documentaries? Um, So I'm on Twitter, probably not tweeting as much as I would like to, but I'll try and tweet some more at Mike Sunder. And then uh, documentary work, if you search for Tokyo 20XX in YouTube or Google, it should pull up some of those videos. Uh, it's funny. I feel like I got serious, Mike, today. And I know there's Fluoro should be a nightclub, D- nightclub DJ Mike, <laughs> Mike that's going to come out on Friday night. But I really appreciate you um, talking about these topics are serious. I know we're ending in a bit of a flippant way. They're, they're serious. They're beautiful. They're crazy. They're, uh, I mean, Japan is such an interesting place. Mike, thank you very much for joining me on Sweater today. Peace. No, thank you very much. That was uh, fun. Cheers.